whoa, that's a pretty snazzy new intro. Uh, if you want to hear more, look for Mosant on Spotify. And if you're in the Cincinnati area, look for them at a local music venue or Clifton Basement near you. Um, thanks again for letting me use your single Critical for the official Minute to Midnight intro. Today I'm talking with two of my favorite people on planet Earth, Ben Mormon and Stanley Zhang, to demystify the world of AI and talk about the responsibility of counteracting bias in machine learning models. This is the first episode of a three-part series on data and its implications, from the perspective of programmers and users. Ben Mormon recently graduated with a bachelor's in data science from Purdue University and is now working at Cisco Systems. Stanley Zhang recently graduated with a bachelor's in computer science from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the pod. So again, starting at kind of like a foundational level, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning are used in the media pretty indiscriminately. And I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and how those um, two terms are actually like playing out in the broad world of artificial intelligence. Um, so I think for me and for our viewers, um, would one of you like to give um, a description of the different types of artificial intelligence and then how perhaps uh, machine learning fits into that? I can go ahead with that. Um, I think artificial intelligence, I have a love-hate relationship with that term. Um, it's very broad and similar to the term data science just has kind of a lack of a clear definition. Um, while machine learning, I think, is a more of a technical term, um, and it, there's it's it's a vague distinction between the two. Um, though I think machine learning more is representative of the models that are being learned and actually are implemented. While artificial intelligence, um, I think for me, I view it more as a marketing term and kind of an umbrella of um that world of things yeah uh yeah I, I like to think of artificial intelligence more as like the concept of trying to get computers to do uh things similar to how uh humans do or think like how a human would think and then uh like then said machine learning is more the practical application of that uh artificial intelligence and uh, a lot of times actually um Artificial intelligence can be quite dumb, uh, despite you know, being called intelligence, because it. Uh, we you've probably seen some memes of programming artificial intelligence, where it's just a series of if statements, right? If this, then do this. If this, then do this. Uh, and and uh, in in short, that really can be all that artificial intelligence is, is just. Uh, uh, checking for a particular condition and doing a particular thing and reacting in a certain way. Uh, you know, uh, the one mind theory, right? You don't know if uh, any other humans are actually responding or feeling the things they're saying, or if they're just some kind of artificial intelligence that takes in whatever environmental inputs and then outputs the uh, appropriate response, right? Um, I think that's also a good distinction with the if statements, um, which for, I guess, non-CS people, it's it's a pretty obvious thing maybe, but um, an if statement in software engineering is just you have if and then some conditional statement like if the color is blue, then you do some action. Um, and I think 
earlier in the history of chatbots online, um, that was more of a, and I think now, unfortunately, um, a lot of chatbots just say, if the user input contains the word hello or the word um, goodbye, then the artificial intelligence will just respond with hello or goodbye. Um, and that I think is, uh, I guess, naive um, artificial intelligence. Um, and is that also defined as like narrow artificial intelligence? Um, naive, I think, can I think naive in the computer science world is um, used as an interesting label, I think, for solving problems in a way that is not the most efficient or most um, effective. Um, and so I think it just kind of shows it's not it's not going to cover all edge cases, which is just, I guess, not the general use, um, which is important. And um, I think that's why more in-depth machine learning algorithms um, and models have worked a lot better than if statements and cover a lot more um, use cases. And that's why they are so prevalent now. Um, and I was another thing I was going to say about the term artificial intelligence. Um, I think a, a, <clears throat> a real term that's used a lot in, I guess, the industry and um, research is artificial general intelligence, which is where theoretically we will have a model which can really understand everything. Um, that's why it's general intelligence. And also, I guess the idea for that is obtaining a human level of knowledge um, and understanding. Um, so artificial general intelligence is seen a lot in research papers around that area. Um, and a really interesting company focused around that is OpenAI, and they, they use that term. So then for the, for the chatbot example, like what exact, exactly distinguishes that from just standard if-then logic? Again, yeah, that's kind of the thing. Or you can call a lot of things artificial intelligence, but it may not be using specifically any machine learning type of models. So um, I guess a good example, like I mentioned, the company OpenAI. Um, overall, as a company, why I'm really interested in them is that they are trying to drive artificial general intelligence research um, and implement really foundational models that cover um, all knowledge and they just released um a year ago or two years ago i think um a model called gpt3 which is that's the natural a, language processing yes it's a it's a language model which means it just tries to understand text so it consumed um a, a ridiculous amount of text from the internet and um, with a lot of really interesting math, tries to understand patterns and predict the next words in a sequence of words or text after a prompt. Um, and so that gets into more, I guess, complex um, models rather than just if-then statements. Um, and GPT-3 is definitely the most complex language model that exists today. Um, and it, I think... By consuming that much information from the internet, it's getting, I guess, somewhat close to achieving artificial general intelligence, though um, 
as people use it more and more are realizing that it's not exactly there um, at all. But that's, I think, the difference. It's it's not using if-then statements at all. It's just a model that's trained on text from the internet, and that model tries to pick up patterns um, by continuously learning from that. So classifying that based off functionality, is that kind of like a form of like limited memory AI? Or like where would that fall as far as functionality? Like it's obviously more than just reactive. It seems like maybe the chatbot is kind of just a reactive. Um, and I think the first example of that is... Uh, the computer that beat the like world famous chess player, right? Um, and, but it just analyzing like what is um, apparent in front of it. it doesn't have any like memory or access to anything outside of that chess game. Um, but then now what you're talking about with this uh, natural language processing, it has the totality of the internet um, kind of in its memory. So is that a, uh, I don't know, where does this fall? Do you think in the spectrum? For GPT-3 or language models, it's using its knowledge and patterns of the internet that it's observed and text on the internet that it's observed um, in a way to predict um, language and responses of prompts. Um, and there's um, a theme of attention in natural language processing models. Um, so it can kind of remember um, the text that it's processing, um, but I don't think attention can be equivalent to our idea of attention. It's more of a, a technical... What a context, right? Yes, it's, context it's like context, um, and it's more in the processing of a sentence rather than remembering, um, remembering things outside. Yeah, so they're not actually remembering all of the data that they've seen. Uh, and it's not being stored in memory somewhere. It's more like, a, like they mentioned, you're, the model is being uh, shaped and formed and molded by the data that it's seen. So each piece of data that the model sees, it'll change itself and it'll improve itself to fit that uh, or to uh, take into account that piece of data into its kind of worldview, just like how you know humans, as they experience more things, they in, uh, input that they, they take that as input into their worldview and they adjust their worldview accordingly. So what you're saying is it's not storing the data as part of the model, but just making itself smarter as it like learns and engages with more. Um, so I, I guess I have one question, like when you're talking about uh, the AI art generation, like Dolly, um, how does it like create these composite images? Like, where is it getting the, the, the source material? Because, I mean, a lot of it is coming from, like, an artistic style of a famous artist or, like, a movement in art or architecture. I've been reading about that um, quite a bit recently, actually. And I've been more focused on an open source version of um, DALI um, called Stable Diffusion, which works in a bit of a different technical way than DALI. But... Um, the way it works is you can look up the data set that it used to be um, trained on, but um, it was trained on, like GPT-3, an extremely large data set that contains um, tons and tons of images, and a lot of those have captions assigned to those images. And so that's where it learns things like um, the style of Van Gogh and kind of can interpret parts of that image and the style of that image. And if you send in a prompt to say, paint a beach like Van Gogh, it understands generally 
the idea of what a Van Gogh painting looks like and can try and replicate that. And I did want to maybe run over quickly how a model works. So a model in maybe its most general abstract way is just a, it's like a function. So there's some input um, and then in the middle, there's, I guess we can say just a black box where it looks at that input, understands based on the patterns it's seen, and then predicts some output. There's, I guess, an, a paradigm of artificial intelligence called neural networks. And the idea, I think, initially and kind of still is to replicate the way a brain works. And so as a kid, you kind of learn by just experimenting and if you touch a hot stove, you're going to yank back because it hurts, and then you're never going to do that again. Um, and so that's an, an example of kind of a negative reward. So while models um, take in information, they start out at kind of random noise. So they have understand no patterns, but as more and more data is um, inputted into the model and the model learns on that, there's some target output that it's wanting to match. And so, for example, a piece of data is pushed through the neural network and inside of the neural network, there are lots of layers of neurons and all of those neurons have weights and biases that are uh, adjusted as data flows through to bring it closer to the, the target label. And so if the predicted label for some example um, is closer to what it should be, then it adjusts the weights in a way that it brings it a step closer to that. Um, but if the label, predicted label is way off, then it will maybe adjust the weights in the opposite way to say, okay, next time when we see something like this, let's go more towards this direction to get the, the label that we want, the correct label that's input inputted in with that set of data. Um, by doing this over and over and over, the model learns more and more and can actually pick up on those patterns and get really good accuracy. Um, and that's why having so much data is important. There's a saying, I guess, trash in, trash out. So if you have bad labely data, data um, you're not going to get any good results because the data won't be able to be understood by the model in a way that's effective. Um, and another really important foundational idea in uh, machine learning is that more data is good. If you have more and more um, well-labeled quality data, the model is going to be able to pick up on more and more patterns that are going to be really effective. Yeah, I just want to clarify that um, what Ben was describing was uh, like super a supervised uh, supervised learning in in AI. Uh, so that's with the labels and stuff, and it's specifically it's a classification problem that Ben was describing. Um, where you have labels and then given a new out, a new input, you try to predict the label or the, uh, yeah, the label of the input, what it, what it is supposed to represent in the, as the output. Uh, and I think we can, uh, take a step back and, and, uh, talk about the different types of, uh, AI. I think, uh, just so that our listeners know there's, uh, so there's supervised learning, which is kind of synonymous with just general machine learning, requires some kind of input, uh, which is why it's called supervised learning, because you need to have somebody label the data in order for the machine to learn that, oh, 
this piece of input is tied to this particular label, right? You know, learn that, you know, adjust the weights accordingly, like Ben said. However, um, Ben also mentioned that the, in, in machine learning, the more data you have, the better, right? So with supervised learning, it, this is quite limited by uh, how much uh, input you have, uh, by how much labels you have. Uh, and you have to make sure that these labels are accurate. Uh, another, the, the other two, or there, there's many, but the, the other two types of uh, machine learning is uh, unsupervised learning and then also reinforcement learning. And unsupervised learning is kind of synonymous with uh, deep learning. And uh, the difference between machine learning or supervised learning and uh, deep learning or unsupervised learning is just a matter of uh, how many layers you have, basically. So typically deep learning, you have a lot of layers uh, in, in so, the so-called neuron layers that uh, Ben was talking about. And that's why it's considered deep learning. And it's unsupervised because it actually doesn't require labeled inputs. It just takes in all inputs. So you're actually just able to just pump in inputs into an unsupervised learning model. And it will uh, automatically try to figure out the, the patterns and uh, group together similar uh, similar features. It'll create its own feature set that it'll adjust weights for. And uh, so it's it, it's kind of a uh, a good a really good tool for grouping together uh, or creating categories and grouping together things that you might not otherwise associate. It's good at finding hidden patterns that you know humans not might not even might not even see. Uh, and so it's really good for you know, association. Um, I will say deep learning isn't necessarily unsupervised. I guess like neural networks can definitely be supervised, um, use, be using supervised data um, or I guess labeled data. Um, and, but they're also really good for unsupervised learning, which is I think a bit more complex. And like you were saying, clustering or like, I guess a clustering algorithm does like assign categories, maybe not um, actually assign some text label, but it does pick up patterns and group sets of data together from the input data set. Um, I was also going to say, yeah, deep learning is, I guess, um, a good term that people may hear. And I think that, Stanley, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's pretty synonymous with neural networks. I, I thought they, uh, like both machine learning and deep learning, they utilize neural networks. Oh, just, that's just what my understanding was. They, they they use neural networks. That's like the foundation of machine learning. Uh, is is like the neural networks, and but deep learning. The difference is like how deep it is. You know how many layers. Uh, uh, Jamie, could you could you look that up real quick? Okay, sure. We don't have a Joe Rogan sized budget here, so standing in for Jamie is future Coley. I tried my best to wrap my head around all the AI vocabulary before we started recording this episode, and I still got lost. Thankfully, the production of these episodes gives me another chance to dive into the nuance and specificity of this topic. So deep learning should be understood as a subset of machine learning. Machine learning is the intersection of computer science and statistics that allows computers to use algorithms to learn from data without being explicitly coded. Both models use hidden layers within the mysterious black box to predict an output after filtering inputs based on extracted features. However, only deep learning utilizes a neural network that functions like a brain, creating unique associations and groups based on self-identified features. Through convolution layers, an image is broken down into smaller and smaller feature maps 
allowing the model to directly identify unique features in complex data such as images or text. Through the process of feature learning, the model can adjust its parameters to look for the most distinctive features useful for classification. Sort of like a game of 20 questions, you start big and broad and work your way down to greater detail. For images, this can begin with filtering for a particular shape by separating an image into edges and blobs as the neural network detects diffuse pixels at the contours of an object. This process of convolution is what distinguishes deep learning from machine learning, eliminating the need for programmers to manually translate abstract image data into clear features that a machine learning model can then understand and classify. In turn, the model has the unique ability to act in an unsupervised fashion, grouping like elements without human intervention or labeling. As Ben mentioned, deep learning can be used in supervised or unsupervised settings, as well as reinforcement, semi-supervised, and self-supervised settings depending on how the neural network is engaged. This is just one example of how terminology can get very murky, especially when narratives are driven by the media grabbing onto fascinating concepts without technical understanding. To provide a little more clarity, AI, as mentioned earlier, is the umbrella term that can be broken down into categories such as reactive, limited memory, theory of mind, and self-aware AI based on functions and likeness to the human mind. Alternatively, AI can be classified as artificial narrow intelligence, artificial general intelligence, and artificial superintelligence. Currently, even our most advanced deep learning model still classifies artificial narrow intelligence, as it can only perform tasks it was programmed for. Additionally, all machine learning is a form of limited memory AI, using its experience processing training data to make decisions. So I think uh, this this pivot into deep learning feels like a good time to address um, potential bias with uh, machine learning models and uh, deep learning models. Um, and I think particularly, um, Stanley, you pointed out that deep learning has the potential to um, kind of counteract human bias. And I think there are some really good examples of that. Um, just recently, uh, this will be a future Coley moment to give a little... Um, synopsis, but I heard of a program that was being used by um, hiring managers at large companies. That program is Pipeline, a tool for eliminating gender inequity in the workplace by providing a composite score to candidates based on key performance data, reviews, experience, and other factors typically assessed by hiring managers. It also estimates return on investment to predict contributions of potential employees. Um, so essentially this program, uh, self identifies and pulls out be like, Hey, this person is meeting a lot of criteria for being promoted. And then it kind of, um, reveals patterns that the hiring managers might ignore either explicitly or implicitly, uh, because, you know, we are imperfect people and we have flaws. Um, but then I think the flip side of that is because machine learning models are still created by humans and even deep learning, although it seems that once it is unsupervised, um, it kind of is able to extrapolate patterns that humans might not notice. But the original rules and guardrails of this model are still human made, correct? Um, somewhat. That gets, I think, quite complex. But the idea is that it's going to do what we want. Um, but I also really quick, um, I think even machine learning models that are not technically deep learning, they also pick up on patterns that we do not pick up on, um, which is exciting. And also those are sometimes the better solutions because they're a lot more efficient. Oh, okay. 
So then I think something like, for example, Dali, it could be problematic in how Dali represents um, certain situations. And there may be an inherent bias based off, you know, what data it was trained off of. How do you see this as like kind of a double-edged sword where there is the potential for eliminating human bias, but then also that bias can infiltrate into the model and kind of create like a flawed output? So I think this goes into uh, a lot of about the alignment problem, which is basically trying to make sure that whatever artificial intelligence uh, we create, whether it's uh, on a very small scale or in the future, if it's like our our robot overlords, we have to make sure that we align uh, their beliefs and interests uh, as close to ours as possible, as close to what we want them to do as possible. So when we talk about uh, biases, it's it's kind of a, a cat and mouse game between, you know, you, you want AI to find these hidden patterns that we can't pick up on uh, to better utilize it. But then also sometimes these hidden pa- patterns that it picks up on uh, can be also utilized to discriminate against groups of people. Um, even, even if that particular uh, feature isn't explicitly presented to the AI. So I, I've read about uh, in like the medical industry, if you pass in uh, a person's medical history uh, and you don't give them their ethnic background or their race, it can still uh, deduce what race they are with uh, quite high accuracy, just based on uh, a lot of a variety of other factors. So that's something that's uh, hidden, a hidden pattern among these uh, these groups that the, the AI picked up on, and that could be used. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, poorly, and to discriminate against these groups of people without even uh, realizing it, right? without the medical professionals realizing that they're doing this. Um, and so it really is uh, like a double-edged sword, like you said. And on the other side, AI can be used to try to eliminate bias, by, but sort of by along the same uh, along the same lines uh, through picking up these hidden patterns and. Uh, so it, it requires a lot of human intervention and uh, supervision still, of course, to, to make sure that the output isn't biased in, in, in sort of obvious way, but it's a, it's very difficult thing to do. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, research being done into that, both for on, on like an immediate front with things like, uh, the, the AIs we use on day-to-day basis and also for the far, far future, for when um, you know we reach artificial general intelligence and when we reach artificial super intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. I guess um, I had previously kind of conceptualized this as um, like being a fault of how the model is set up, and that models can either be set up for good or for bad, which I think is to a degree true. But I to another degree, um, bias is inherent in everything we do so you'll never eliminate bias from the original model just because i mean human programmers have biases that they're just not going to pick up on and the model well um and i think maybe that is what machine learning does really well um is that it picks up on things we don't see obviously um and those things can be really good and insightful but they can also be really insidious 
Um, and it's not to say that the output then has to be insidious, but I think that's when the human has to come back in at the end and interpret these results and understand how to use them. I think maybe the example of Dolly, where it's a little problematic is that it is just giving you an image and then it's kind of like, oh, like, what? Well, how does this image make me feel? Like, I think you could probably be offended by um, what the the model generates. And then I think you might be led to be upset with the programmers or this company. Um, and then it kind of just feeds into um, a pretty negative feedback loop, right? Um, however, I, I think maybe instead we should view that as the moment where humans must intervene again and kind of interpret and be like, oh, wow, this result is not um, what we expected. And it's revealing like a really damaging pattern. Like in the example of healthcare, maybe it's revealing that, you know, um, certain ethnic groups are uh, being unfairly prejudiced to um, poor treatment because of uh, maybe these biases that our medical system has. Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe maybe the important thing is to think not of uh, machine learning as like an end product, but kind of this in-between that goes from like this initial concept and a model that is formed, and then the computer kind of takes over, and then we have to come back in and interpret those results. We can't just accept accept them as like oh this is like ultimate efficiency and um this is like the future right <laughs> i think that's a good point uh, but i also think there's a very huge responsibility um that should be placed upon the the whole process before a model and the, in the development of a model the main source of biases within the um, model is the data. And with that, the data is collected by people as bi who have biases. And um, certain collection methods may have biases implemented within them, whether it's on purpose or on accident. Um, and a big problem is um, class imbalance. I guess, for, for example, image recognition. Um, if you're training an image recognition model on um, pictures of cats and dogs. If there are a million images of dogs and then 5,000 images of cats, the model is not going to be able to pick up on patterns of cats and pretty consistently predict those um, the labels for those images incorrectly. And similarly for other things, that can be a big problem. Uh, another big problem is with using historical data that represents a lot of the systemic um, racism and biases in our society. Um, having those things represented in the data that's used in our models, um, just magnifying that inequity and that systemic bias. For example, I think medical models that are predicting necessary care, um, there was a consistent prediction for people of color needing less care than white people, um, just because the historical data that the model saw consistently saw people of color having less care than white people, which is a result of systemic racism and problems in our society. And in that occurrence, the model was consistently proving that that has been a systemic problem, but actually just implementing it, implementing it over and over. Understanding those biases and um, doing things in the production of a model is really important. And Coley, for your example of the model that was, I guess, looking at employees' performance and certifications and education and predicting promotion. Um, and so a big problem in 
developing a model is making sure that those um, that private information is not used in the training of a model, which seems easy. Maybe you can just remove the gender category of data um, in the data, but there are a lot of ways, like Stanley said, even without those explicit things, they can still, models can still pick up on patterns that produce that label and pick up on those patterns that continue that um, systemic problem, which can be um, quite hard to navigate. But I think, like I've said, an important responsibility that needs to be placed on the developers of a model to combat that bias in the data set. So I guess where I'm kind of caught right now, um, you had the comment earlier about, and I think this makes intuitive sense, that trash in, trash out, right? Um, but I guess to a certain degree, and I think you pointed this out with just the history of systemic racism, like it's not that the data is bad, it's that the data is accurately representing what the historical conditions of our country have been. Um, so I'm not sure, um, like is a race blind data set, is that going to lead to more or less accurate results? Like it feels like it might, uh, I don't know if necessarily the problem is reflecting our own bias. Like I think maybe it's good that machine learning points out our own inequities in society and then you can respond to them. But if you build a model that is trying to like omit those uh, the, that discrepancy, I think then you might get a model that um, maybe gives you a false conclusion that, for example, oh, people of color need less care. But that's clearly not true. All right. I want to take advantage of this moment to address a lingering question of mine that I've been wrestling with since we recorded this episode. When I asked this question, I was specifically thinking about how affirmative action has been implemented in the college admissions process. Here, race becomes one factor of many that applications are evaluated on. The argument in favor states that when race is not a factor, hence the term race-blind, the demographics of admitted students becomes disproportionately skewed towards white and Asian students. This is a symptom of a highly inequitable and classist education system that concentrates resources and opportunities in higher-income school districts. Because a legacy of institutional racism has isolated people of color in lower-income school districts, their access to educational resources and opportunities are limited. When previously considered by the Supreme Court, affirmative action was viewed as a temporary yet vitally necessary remedy to inequitable education systems. In effect, it gave people of color a better chance at attending prestigious universities where they would have access to resources inaccessible to them previously. Affirmative action is one policy that recognizes the inequitable distribution of resources as a result of American governance. This leads me to wonder how AI can make predictions that promote equity if we omit key demographic data that reveals systemic inequity. I can see how these models have the potential to magnify human prejudice, but if a system is built on equality, meaning giving everyone equal attention and resource, it ignores a legacy of injustice. Is it possible to build machine learning models that elevate disenfranchised communities to direct care and resources to people who have been historically underserved? Right, right. But then there's also like a billion other factors that we haven't considered that also tie into it, right? So the issue with, um, like you said, trying to eliminate bias from uh, machine learning models, but doing it as a human we can only eliminate the biases uh, that we see, right? So like you said, that that could uh, skew the model 
even though your intentions are good, to try to remove the bias. So would it not be better then to just take the whole data set? It feels problematic to try to filter um, the data before you put it in if it might lead to like that false conclusion. Yeah, and that's that's where you can play like devil's advocate and say like, you know, you don't don't you want the data model to be representative of reality, even including those biases, right? And if you notice those biases, you can, like you said, respond to them uh, using real life policies. And then over time, if you keep training your 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 model using new data, it'll eventually adjust to to account for the improved biases in real life right okay i'm trying to conceptualize so when you say like if you just feed in a bunch of historical data like use the example of uh medical data right and you have all these participants and you have um age race ethnicity all of that right um and then it reveals like oh you know this demographic of people aren't receiving proper care for these like um conditions that um, they may be predisposed to, right? So then how do you take the result of that and feed it back into the model? Like what does that feedback loop look like? Uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of machine learning models, they have uh, a feedback loop built in, which is a little bit more of a technical term than your traditional uh, imagery of like a feedback loop, but it works in the same way, right? So it, it takes in, this is during the uh, training stage of a machine learning model. It takes in uh, input, right? And it adjusts all the weights and features based on the input, tries to uh, cluster them and so on. Um, but there's also a, a stage in there called back propagation, where it takes that new input in that new model that just uh, got developed the slightly shifted worldview right it's like a new perspective and it, it, it back propagates that worldview onto the previous data that it has already encountered so that's back propagation and it's basically like saying oh um, let's say I I turned on the light switch today and it shocked me and I don't know why Right. So, and then I keep living life, and then I learn about electrical engineering, and I find out that there's uh, it, the, the the circuit behind the light switch short circuited, and then that's what's called the spark to, to shock me. Right? And then I back propagate that knowledge to apply to my previous experience of turning on the light switch, and it shocked me. So now I know why that was. Right. Yeah. Basically, you're using your new knowledge to adjust your perspective of your pre-existing knowledge which is kind of what humans do right yeah yeah i mean i feel like that's the i mean that's the trope when people say um hindsight is 2020 right right like right. it's very clear like what your your previous flaw was once you have gone through that experience um so i could see how that would be beneficial to training the model um so then i guess with that like what like what is kind of the the end product? So from there, um, humans would then assess that data and kind of create like a 
like a summary of the findings and then be like, okay, these are problem spaces where uh, we should intervene with action. I think one thing for that is, yeah, you need data to represent, I guess, the the good things the model did and the bad things the model did. And one thing you can do is just kind of scrap that model and you can use some of the same data, but you need to make sure the data you used is good and what you want to represent. But um, for example, what OpenAI is doing with GPT-3, which is the huge, really great language model, um, they slowly slowly released it into kind of a beta program to have people test it out and see the applications that people would create with it. Um, but then they're constantly asking for feedback on the outputs that the model is producing. And using that, they are, like Stanley said, kind of relearning that model based on the outputs. Since um, with a negative rating, it will lean less towards the output that it had produced and maybe more towards something else that it can discover. Um, and having some sort of labeling for the data of the outputs is good to train that model on. Um, but it's also important to have and discover, I guess, data that you can use that is better to train the model on. Yeah, I think it's important to, uh, to specify that, uh, with any machine learning model, it's going to be as accurate as the data that you put in, right? So it's gonna be representative of that. And so I don't think you can really blame the model if it is biased, if the input data is itself is biased, right? So what happens when when you encounter such bias in a model, you know, you, you there's two things like we mentioned, you could uh, implement real life policies that change that and then eventually the, the model will catch up right or and that obviously takes a much uh, uh, takes place on a much longer time scale uh, or you know you could go in there and manually modify these biases within the model itself which is what uh, Colleen and I were talking about earlier uh, which might be a little presumptuous of us to you know uh, it, it could be argued that you know we don't know how to modify that it's saying like we know better than the AI, which can pick up on these kind of hidden patterns, right? It's saying that, uh, oh no, this isn't, this isn't uh, representative of reality, even though it, it definitely modeled whatever input data you gave it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like, uh, we are approaching modifying the bias from a human perspective, which I think is a very limited capacity compared to all the various factors that the computer is considering when training and creating this model. And um, through our modifications, we don't know what other complications might arise in the model. So this brings up two questions for me about the front end of the creation of this model. One being data, I don't understand how data could ever actually in its raw form be biased. I understand how the application of that data and how maybe we under, like what implications we think that data has, um, that can be biased. And if we're drawing false conclusions based off what patterns we think we're seeing, right? Um, but if you just give all of this data to a machine learning model, like is there ever a point where 
too much data is actually um, hindering the model? Um, is there ever like it seems to me like there would would never be a point of filtering out data on the front end that instead you should see what the results are and then like you said you can adjust um your understanding of the past based on your reaction right so it's kind of like this seeing multiple um points in time at once and combining that but like why would you ever try to limit the data you put in at the beginning um and then with that is more data always better? Um, I think that's a huge debate in the artificial intelligence intelligence community, whether or not more data is always better. Um, and I think historically it has been, I think pretty consistently better, um, that more data is better. And I think that's why like GPT-3, the large language model, there was GPT-2, which was, um, which consumed less data um, in the from the internet, but GPT-3 performs a lot better with a lot more data. Um, but I think with reducing or removing some of the data at the beginning of the production of the model, uh, that is where you want to, I guess, remove certain features. And a, a big process in developing a model is um, pre-processing of data. So you want to remove features that don't add much value to the discovery of patterns and things like that. And that's that's really important in what makes um, a model effective. Um, but also I think with data being biased, I think, oh, I guess I, I have the opinion that data can be biased because it, if it's representing biases in the world um, that really actually take place. Um, but is that really a bias or is it just a reflection of inequity? I think those are different things. Like bias implies that there's kind of unfair judgment being placed on it. But if it's just replicating a thing that exists, like it's not biased that systemic racism exists. Um, I would say that it's biased to deny it, really. I think bias is a very human application of data. And so, like Coley mentioned, I don't think data can be biased. Data doesn't recognize whether the differences in data uh, is fair or unfair. It just knows that there are these differences. And, uh, and this is why it's, it's, it's kind of hard to uh, train uh, a model to not be biased. You know, you tell it, hey, don't be biased. And it's like, uh, well, how do I know if this, if these two different aspects of a thing is a bias or if it's just a, a, a an inherent difference, right? Yeah, I think it gets into the, the, I guess, distinction whether or not the model actually understands what it's doing, which is a whole thing. This conversation did a lot to guide my understanding of bias as a factor in implementing machine learning models, but still feels a bit obscure. After slowing down and really listening to what Ben and Stanley said multiple times over and then following up my own research, I realized where I misunderstood how machine learning models and training are implemented. Several times I challenged Ben when he described the need to filter data that the model is trained on. However, he appropriately identified the potential of machine learning models to reflect and magnify the prejudice that is represented within data collected. I think most of this conflict can be attributed to the lack of a clear definition of bias in terms of human prejudice infiltrating models and the technical meaning of bias when building models.
First off, there are several kinds of bias that can skew results towards a prejudiced outcome. There's algorithm bias, which is caused by a problem with the algorithms developed by programmers that power machine learning. Sample bias may be familiar to anyone that has conducted a survey and is the result of a training dataset that is not appropriately sized or not representative of the model's real-world applications. This results in a class imbalance, as Ben mentioned earlier, and can lead the model to make inaccurate and biased predictions. Properly selecting the data a model is trained on through random sampling and forming a diverse and representative group of stakeholders is vital. Prejudice bias describes when data represents existing societal stereotypes, assumptions, and prejudices, which introduce those real-world biases into the machine learning model. Measurement bias quite obviously refers to the inaccuracy of the tools used to measure or assess the data during collection. And finally, exclusion bias occurs when important data points are left out of the training data set due to model programmers not realizing its consequence to the desired result. In terms of how the machine learning model understands these terms, bias exists on a spectrum of variance. Variance is the variability in the model prediction, or how well it can predict outcomes based on changes in the training data set. Alternatively, in this context, bias is a phenomenon that excuses the result of an algorithm in favor or against an idea. For example, a model with a high bias will not be able to accurately capture trends in data, resulting in a high error rate when the predicted outcome does not match the desired outcome. This is also called underfitting and can be the result of a model that is too simple to process a more complex data set. On the other hand, a model of a high variance will be hindered by too much noise in the data set, resulting in a model forcing data trends that are not actually there. This is called overfitting, which is caused by a complex model with a greater depth of layers but a small training data set that the model can too easily memorize. When a high variance model is introduced to new data, it is distracted by features that aren't important to classification and therefore forces inaccurate and highly variable classifications on outputs. Understanding this, there are a few key areas where programmers can affect the output of the model. Most importantly, programmers have control over what data the model is being trained on. It is important that the data be class balanced according to the desired output classes, while consisting of an appropriate amount of noise to avoid the model forming too strong of biases, leading to a high error rate. Additionally, when building a neural network, programmers have control over capacity by manipulating the number of hidden layers and the individual nodes or neurons on those layers. Each neuron is a graphical representation of a numerical value, and the connections between these neurons are known as weights. Weights are vectors connected in a matrix directing the path of information between layers in the neural network. As mentioned, properly sizing the model to the training data set is essential to balance bias and variance. As Stanley mentioned earlier, weights are adjusted through a process known as backpropagation. After the data is passed forward, the error is calculated as a sum of the difference between the actual and expected values before it is backpropagated through a gradient descent to adjust weights that guide future data to a more accurate output. Further, there is opportunity to use bias to adjust the output with a constant variable applied to each neuron. This variable applies a directional force in favor or against an outcome and is also adjusted autonomously by the neural network through backpropagation. Think of this as a mountain landscape where your elevation is the value of the output classification error. You're moving about an XY coordinate grid in search of the lowest point, but you only know your current position and elevation. You can adjust the global parameters X and Y, but you don't know how manipulating one parameter will affect the other. Further, you can imagine that much more complex machine learning models with countless parameters are very difficult to manipulate, as making changes to improve accuracy for one class can lead to cascading effects elsewhere.
In search of a universal minimum, you descend the steepest slope while stopping at each junction to evaluate the gradient. As you can imagine, there are several ways to evaluate the steepest slope, and there are many local minimums approaching the universal minimum. Additionally, you can encounter saddle points where the grade is near flat, thus slowing progress, or V-shaped canyons launching you back up the mountain. For this reason, there are several different methods for backpropagation. However, they all share a goal of teaching the model to reduce the difference between the expected and predicted label. I think these ideas were implicitly present in our conversation, but perhaps not clearly articulated in a way that allows us to understand where and how humans can influence the output of machine learning models. Our conversation oscillated around where the responsibility should fall at the pre-processing phase regarding data collection, the in-processing phase regarding backpropagation, or the post-processing phase where models interact with real-world data by engaging with beta users. Ultimately, it should be happening during all of these phases all the time. It's not an either-or argument, and the process is not always so linear. That was a lot, but hopefully helpful to filling out our conversation. This is an extremely hard problem to solve. It's not like people really have a solution to this. And that's why I think the responsibility needs to be placed on the engineers who are developing these models and the research being done in the industry and also the users of the models to understand the problems that could be occurring and what to do about that. And that's why I think the education around, I guess, the application of machine learning is really important. But aren't we actively using this? Like, isn't AI already being used? Things, things, AI is being used for a lot of things that maybe, I guess you can decide whether or not it should be or not. And that's why I think the problem is you need to, developers need to understand how it affects people and, and before it's in application or while it's in application, because that's kind of inevitable. You need to be able to adjust it and make sure that it's being used in a way that's effective in a good way. Uh, an interesting point that uh, I, I remember from my computer ethics class uh, w regarding how long do you take to make sure that your code or your program or your uh, machine learning model is 100% uh, infallible. So, like, for example, like in, in the example of like a, a self-driving car, right? It's like Tesla is like a hot topic these days. And we want to make sure that those cars that are driving autonomously are as safe as possible, but to what degree, right? So it, it, it's impossible to say something will be a hundred percent safe, right? So now at what cutoff do we finally ship the finished program, right? Do we say, Oh, once it's 99% safe, then we're, it's good enough. Or if it says 99.9% safe, it's good enough. So there's, there's a balance between, you know, maximum maximizing, the uh, efficacy and the safety and usability of a product, and then also the, the time on the, on the time scale side, right? You want to be able to actually, you know, use these things uh, without needlessly, you know, trying to perfect it, which is impossible. Right? Yeah, I th I think realistically, people are not in companies or I guess everywhere, people are not waiting to deploy these models or whatever it is, technology to solve things. And that is a problem. And I think something I would like to do in the future um, is make sure I'm in a position where I can influence the way things are being deployed and make sure they are being deployed or implemented in a way that 
is safe and um, effective. But yeah, realistically, I think it's not, people are not waiting to make sure models or technology or whatever it is, is being produced in an equitable way. Your example of the the safety, like nothing can ever be 100% safe, like there will always be failures and those like edge cases where things go horribly wrong. But um, I guess in architecture and engineering, there's a idea of like capacity and that you design something for like 150% of what you think the worst case like load will be, right? So if it's like snow, um, if you're in an area that um, maybe your annual snowfall is like 40 inches, you're going to design for like 60 inches of snowfall. So you intentionally build in a much higher capacity. And the same thing, like when you see an elevator and it says like the load capacity is 12,000 pounds. Um, no, it's not. It's like 18,000, you know, and like those rates also change depending on what you think the risk case is. So like for schools and hospitals, you have a much higher threshold uh, because the tolerance for risk is lower. Um, so I guess maybe that seems like a more effective way rather than saying like, well, nothing's ever 100% safe. But I think that idea of like, what does 100% safe mean in different contexts, especially when, um, I mean, AI generated art, maybe the stakes are lower. But when you're talking about like a fleet of autonomous vehicles, like that is very high risk. And I think your threshold for safety should be higher. Um, so I wonder if there's any kind of standards like this and that, like, I mean, what I'm describing about load capacity, like that is written in law, um, for building in every country. I mean, there's an international building code that specifies like these are suggested limits. And then obviously every country has, um, their own laws that then are adopted. And then within that, every state and then every municipality, like it, it, it there's quite a, a hierarchy to these these rules um but they all kind of come down to a similar core logic if you know um a worst case disaster in uh, certain scenarios is just way worse and therefore has a a higher threshold for what is deemed safe um so yeah i i wonder if any kind of standards like this exist for ai is it is it just too like young and it's empty, like building has existed forever. Um, so, well, not forever, but as long as we've been building civilizations. Um, so obviously this is a very time tested method. So is there something like this for AI? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's difficult because it's a very uh, difficult, it's, it's hard to quantify this aspect of AI as you can with uh, perhaps like load capacities on structures. Uh, and that that's like only one factor, of course, right? But even if you consider one factor at a time for AI, uh, there, especially for things like autonomous vehicles, there are like an infinite amount of things you can think of on a road, uh, unexpected situations, right? And uh, the, the thing with um, like these machine learning models for autonomous driving is that it's kind of like a black box, like Ben mentioned at the beginning. We don't really know what's going on on the inside, so it just takes it takes a lot of time and a lot of testing simulations to to try to figure out these bugs. Uh, and there's um, also like uh, kind of philosophical or moral dilemmas uh, that it has to try to consider, like versions of the trolley problem. Like if a Tesla vehicle has is like about to collide with uh, five people, right, on the road crossing the road, does it just keep straight? and kill those five people or does it veer off and potentially uh kill the the driver right so 
do you do you value the driver's life more or pedestrians more uh what kind of decisions does this car have to make right it, it's very, it has very real implications that doesn't have a very clear answer and it's not very easily quantifiable into uh, some sort of standards so even though that computer science you know is a in in ai in particular is a relatively brand new uh, concept it i don't see how it can be quantified in terms of uh, you know standards or safety measures well i feel like that's kind of where um governing bodies and like laws kind of need to step in and i think maybe the problem is that i mean most people in government really have very very limited understanding of uh this technology i mean um we low-key live in a gerontocracy right like we're being ruled by by people that were born before the internet and like i I don't mean to discriminate against them and i mean it's it's not to say that uh, older people can't adapt to uh changing technologies but i think it's clear to see that uh in our government like we just don't really have a legal system that is equipped to deal with these problems and like you're defining there's a lot of moral and legal gray area in ai and I guess what alarms me is that it seems like we're kind of leaving these moral decisions up to tech companies right now. And we're kind of trusting that they're going to use um, their best judgment and good faith arguments, you know, to um, create safe self-drive, self-driving cars. But I mean, Elon Musk is at the head of Tesla. And based on his uh, actions lately, I don't know if I trust him to be making these uh, very difficult moral ethical and legal decisions and i mean the reality is there just isn't a strong enough governing body to really regulate it and uh kind of weigh in to like i mean you're right that there is a trolley problem and i think there probably should be a legal standard for if in an event where like the ai has detected that there will be a casualty right how do you weigh that i don't have the answer to this I don't think uh, I don't really think any one person should be able to figure this out, but it's definitely a conversation we need to start having before um, these cars get on the road. And it seems like they're scarily close to be. I mean, to a certain degree, the Teslas are on highways, right? But I mean, that's obviously a limited application. I do think, yeah, regulations for I think pretty much all of technology is way behind, and I think the rate of innovation for technology is uh, it's. I think it's going to be hard for legislation and regulation to catch up with that. Um, I also, I, I, I guess a disclaimer, I don't have solutions to any of this stuff, but, um, you shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. If I did, I should be doing some other things, but, um, I, I, I don't know from my understanding of, I guess how, machine learning or, or AI or whatever works, I, I don't know how you're going to quantify things. And like for the self-driving example, I don't know how you're going to build in something like that uh, to cover all situations to match that regulation. I guess maybe- How can we? There are a lot of those questions regarding our AI future, and there are no easy answers. The next episode in this series on data and its applications will venture into the moral consequences of AI and the arguments at the heart of the philosophical debate over its implementation. If this episode got a little too technical for you, as I know it has overwhelmed me a bit, the next one should engage much more abstract thinking. If you have any questions, try out the Q&A for the episode on Spotify or respond to our post on Instagram. We're leaving it very open-ended for this episode, as I'm sure we left a lot of loose ends out there. So feel free to ask for further clarification, challenge how we represented a concept, or pose questions guiding your own research. Thanks for listening.